0: Uh, that passage where we were last week, but continuing down today uh, to verse 19, uh, Genesis chapter 34 and verse 1, reading down to verse 19, and then, Lord willing, we'll go all the way through the chapter by the end of the message this morning. Genesis chapter 34 and verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul cleave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Give me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved. And they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter I pray you, give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what, we, what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, And I will give according as ye shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully. And said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said unto him, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem Hamor's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honourable in all the house of his father. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Now last Lord's Day we looked in this passage and we saw that there was at the outset an act of fornication when Jacob's daughter went astray and she followed after her worldly friends and found herself uh, living with a man in Shechem, a man that she hardly knew, having been seduced by him. It was a story of teenage lust, of infatuation, of worldliness, of parental abdication, and now it's all about to turn very nasty indeed. Now you'll recall, and indeed we've just read, uh, that having been intimate with her, Shechem falls in love with Dinah. He wants to marry this young woman, but in keeping with the order of the day, such a marriage must be arranged. So he goes and he appeals to his father, Hamor, and he asks him to go on his behalf and speak with Jacob and ask for Dinah's hand in marriage. Well, Hamor just does that. He makes his way to Jacob's house, but whilst he's on his way, Jacob has already heard about Dinah's situation and of his daughter's behavior, and so when he gets there, there's a sense of indignation. There was an act of fornication. Now there's a sense of of indignation. Look at verses five to seven again. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved. And they were very wroth because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be Now I want you to notice there in verse 5 that the scripture says that Dinah had been defiled. It's a very interesting term in the Hebrew. It's a word that is applied to the desecration of a temple. In Psalm 79 verse 1 we read, O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance, thy holy temple have they defiled. Exactly the same uh, word. And it's interesting, especially in the light of New Testament truth, because as we turn to the New Testament, we find that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, that the Lord dwells in us, that he has consecrated us bodily unto himself. You know, sometimes we think that salvation is all about the soul, but salvation is also about the body. Jesus died to redeem the body, and someday he is going to resurrect the body, or indeed rapture us in bodily form, and, and glorify us uh, like unto himself. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, Paul says, "'Know ye not that ye are the temple of God?' and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defy the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And later on in that epistle, likewise, he comes back to the same theme. uh, When he says this, uh, flee fornication, in verse 18 of chapter 6. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so Dinah had really no business yielding her body, God's temple, to Shechem's desires. And you and I equally have no business yielding our temple to gratify uh, our own flesh, uh, to satisfy our own desires. You know, when you're a Christian, your body belongs to God. You must always remember that. You know, I don't get this. I see a lot of young Christians today uh, getting tattoos. Let me tell you something. You have no business graffitiing God's temple. That body isn't yours to damage in that way. And so in that respect, all of us need to take into account that whatever we do in our bodies, our bodies belong to the Lord. It is not your body. It's not my body. It's his temple. Well, Jacob is sore. He's sore at Shechem, He's sore with Dinah. Uh, Maybe he's even sore with himself to some degree. But when Hamor shows up on his doorstep to sort things out, man to man, so to speak, Jacob literally has nothing to say. You see, what could he say? It wasn't like his home was perfect. It wasn't like his children were perfect. It wasn't like uh, his marriages were textbook unions. And so we find that he held his peace. That's what we're told there, that Jacob held his peace. He had nothing to say. And we can say on the one hand that he was to be admired for his cautious approach to the situation. But on the other hand, not saying anything at all makes him look rather weak. And indecisive. He should really have made short shift of Hamor. He should have made his way into Shechem. Right up to Shechem's front door. And brought his daughter home. And that would have been the end of the matter. But he, he knew enough to know that no Israelite should ever marry a Canaanite. And let me say this to you, just because, you know, somebody has been intimate, or God forbid, just because your daughter has come home and it's revealed that she's fallen pregnant to some fellow, let me say that that is no reason to marry her to that person. You know, there's no justification for a shotgun marriage. You know, this idea, well, she's fallen pregnant by him and therefore she should marry him. No, I don't think so. That's not actually a, a, an imposition that is put upon you. You have, this, you have still the right to say no, and she ought to be encouraged to, uh, to think about this thing. I'm not saying she shouldn't marry the boy, but I'm saying that she shouldn't be forced to marry the boy in question. And Jacob should have just brought his daughter home and then moved on with his life. But he didn't do that. He just stood there and stared at the floor. And before he had said so much as a word, his sons appeared on the doorstep, having heard what had happened, equally upset at the news that came from Shechem and equally upset at Dinah and Shechem's relationship and especially upset at that Hamor and Shechem were standing in their living room. Now notice in verses 8 through 12, then there's an attempt at negotiation. There is an act of fornication, a sense of indignation, an attempt at negotiation. Verse 8, And Hamor communed with them, not with Jacob now, but with his brother... With the brothers saying the soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife and make ye marriages with us and give your daughters unto us and take our daughters unto you and you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein and get your possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren let me find grace in your eyes and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. Now, we understand everybody here is angry. Jacob's angry, his sons are angry. We we get that, they're grieved to their souls in their own words, you know, such a thing ought not to be done in Israel. But still, Hamor persisted. He's trying to reach out, and notice the rewards he holds out to them. In the hope that they will give their consent to this marriage, he he offers them first of all worldly society. He says to them, "Make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you." He says, "You know, if we could, if we could just intermarry, we could build a a, a better society together. Let's not fight. Let's be family. Let's just put this thing behind us, and let's all just get along, shall we?" And then he offers them worldly security. He says, "And you shall dwell with us." He says, "No longer will you be outsiders. No longer will you be the strangers in the area. No, you'd be one of us. You'd be part of our of our tribal group, and uh, and consequently, you'd be safe within our borders." And he offers them worldly success. He says, the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade you there and get your possessions therein. He says, you can come in and you can trade unabated. There'll be no restrictions. There'll be no protocol. There'll be none of these things. You'll have total freedom in the land and it's all to your benefit. Let me tell you something. All the devil's apples have worms. The Israelites Are a chosen and peculiar people. They were not to mingle with the Canaanites, but to separate themselves from the people of the land. And these offers, no doubt, made with absolute sincerity. Uh, were nevertheless the devil's attempt to sidetrack them from their national purpose for uh, them uh, in the will of God. In other words, there was an attempt here to corrupt the nation. There was an attempt here at the earliest opportunity uh, to muddy the, the, uh, the messianic line. How clever is the devil? That offer looks very tempting, but it was really a deceit and a spiritual deceit at that. Well, not only was there an effort at negotiation, there was a feeling of humiliation. Look at verse 13. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully, and said, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said unto him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you. If you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem Hamor's son, and the young man deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honourable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came unto the gate of their city, and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land, and trade therein for the land. Behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us, for to dwell with us to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and to Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city, and every meal was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. Now, here's the problem. No matter what offer was made, whether it was Hamor's worldly offer, or indeed, as we see, Shechem's financial offer, uh, offer the he the wound simply could not be healed. You know, some things aren't just easily eradicated. Some wounds go deep. And uh, this wound was running deep. Dinah had been Defiled, And actually, in that culture, a woman who succumbed to sexual intimacy before marriage was considered to be damaged goods. Now, we don't like to think of people in those terms in this modern age, in this Western world, but that's how it was. Her father could never secure a full bridal price for her again. She was like a used car, so to speak. And she's being viewed here as property. If you notice, the discussion that is ongoing is not about the rape of Dinah. Dinah is not being presented as a victim because she's not a victim. She's consensual. Uh, But what is being discussed now is about commercial benefit, commercial advantage. There's a business to be done. And it seems that Shechem, listening to his father's proposal and seeing perhaps that the brothers were bristling at every word, steps in being somewhat of a sensitive young man. And he, uh, he, he says he will pay whatever they ask. You know, that he will pay whatever dowry is required of him. They just have to name the price, however much it was. He wasn't looking to devalue her value in terms of commercial uh, interest. He was quite willing to pay the full amount and more, if needs be, in order to marry her. Now, you know, he, he's, here's a young man, and notice I, I, I like what he says. Let me find grace in your eyes. You know, friends, that's where forgiveness comes from. Forgiveness comes from grace. And when you refuse to forgive somebody, you're being ungracious. You're being unchristlike. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to forgive one another even as Christ has forgiven us. And how does the Lord forgive us? He shows us grace. Well, what is grace? Well, grace is God giving us something we don't necessarily deserve. And so this young man comes, and on the basis of grace, he appeals to them. He says, let me find grace in your eyes. He he recognizes that they're not happy, that, that this is not something fitting to their culture. And he says, let me find grace in your eyes. Forgive me, he says, and I'll pay the money. Whatever it is, I'm willing to pay uh, the money. He wants to make it right. He just wants to get along with her family. And you have to feel a little bit for him. But here's the tragedy of the unequal yoke. In an unequal yoke, the filling of the peace is not the lost person. You see, the lost person doesn't know any different. The lost person just does what lost people do. They're operating in the world, and the principles by which they live are worldly principles. And so they're just acting as anybody in the world would act. You can't be hard on the lost man or the lost woman who comes home with your son or your daughter. You can't say, well, you know, this fellow's a rascal, and and look at him trying to get no, 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 no. Here, I want you to understand this. The lost person isn't the one primarily at fault. The person who's primarily at fault in in this instance is the saved person who shouldn't enter into an unequal yoke in the first place. Well, the sound of Shechem's voice, far from calming, fraught feelings, only serves to annoy even more. And so the brothers, most likely led by Simeon and Levi, as we'll see, come up with a plan. They said, well, you know what? They said, this is not a commercial problem. You know, this is not, the issue is not with the business. The business is good. The business model is good. The problem is a religious problem. You see, we can't allow our sister to marry a man who's uncircumcised. And you people are uncircumcised and we're circumcised and it would hurt our conscience. But tell you what, if you Shechem and your father and the men of your town will all agree to be circumcised, well, that'll get us over the hump. That'll overcome the problem. And we can then go along with your father's proposal and we'll all live happily ever after. You see, it was a lie. They spoke with him deceitfully. In fact, it was worse than a lie. It was a religious lie. Nothing's worse than a religious lie. And they used the cloak of God's covenant, the seal of the covenant, the act of circumcision, to cover their true intention. They thought, well, how dare these gentiles? Who do they think they are, coming into our house, having defiled our sister, and now they're trying to trying to sell her off, asking us to to, to give you know to receive their money as though she was a, some kind of cheap harlot. That's what they said in verse thirty one. They said, should we deal should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? That's how they feel. And so they play this confidence trick. And and here's my question. You know, when it says that the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, in verse 13, deceitfully. Here's my question to you this morning. How did they learn uh, to be so adept in the art of deceit? How did they learn to be so capable of pulling the wool over somebody's eyes? Well, friends, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And if Dinah had learned how to attract men from her mother, well, surely the, the sons of Jacob had learned how to deceive men from their father. You see, Jacob's birds, uh, uh, birds are all coming home to roost. Hamor and, Hamar, Hamar and Shechem are delighted with the revised offer. It seems to them to be a reasonable offer. Now, to us it might sound extreme, <laughs> You know, if somebody were to come into Points Pass and try to do business in this town and say, I'll tell you what, I'll do business in this town if all the men are circumcised. We'd say, well, that's that's not going to (laughs) happen. It's extreme to our ears. But you've got to remember that other people groups besides the Hebrews in that region, in that time, in that culture practice circumcision. You see, the Jews even now aren't the only ones who practice circumcision. In fact, the Islamic world practices circumcision. And so it wasn't something unusual they were asking in the context of the culture and the time. It was rather mundane. It was rather everyday. It was, well, it's no big deal. You want us to be circumcised? All right, we'll be circumcised. Notice again that the Bible speaks of Shechem as an honorable young man. In verse 19, he says that he was more honorable than all the house of his father. So here's Jacob's sons acting deceitfully, and Hamor's son is acting honorably. And this is one of the proofs of inspiration. You know, God speaks sometimes in Scripture, and he highlights the virtues of sinners and the feelings of saints. Now, if, if man had written this book, you know, we would want the line of Christ to be, uh, be one that was just shining from beginning to end, a shining example of, of righteousness and of, and of godly living. But the Spirit of God throws the spotlight upon this family He says, well, actually, uh, these men misbehaved. They acted deceitfully. And this young man, yes, he misbehaved at the beginning, but he's seeking grace and forgiveness, and he's acting honorably. But if we had written this book, we would have made it the other way around. We would have made the heroes the honorable people. And the villains, the other side, the deceitful people, the dishonest people. And, and we would have painted Shechem as, as, uh, as, uh, as uh, less insincere, as insincere, as ingenuous. But God always tells the truth. God is no respecter of persons, friends. And here's what I want you to get God will tell the truth about us. You know, when it comes to his judgment seat, it'll not be our public image that is brought to his throne. It'll be the real us, warts and all. Notice that in this proposal from Jacob's brothers or Jacob's sons, that the men of Shechem didn't see anything awry. There was no question in their mind that, Dinah's family was anything less than sincere. They didn't for one moment suppose that they would be subject to an attack. And again, this suggests to us that Dinah lay with Shechem of her own accord, that she lived in his home by her own free will. And the men of the town who thought very highly of this young prince, were very happy to oblige. And again, surely that speaks volumes about him and the high regard in which he was held. They saw it as no more than a good trade deal. Look at verse 23. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. They said, this is profitable for everybody. It's good for them, it's good for us. Shechem gets to marry Dinah. Everybody gets to marry one another. We'll all be one big happy family. We can trade together. We'll be safe together. We'll be secure together hey what's there not to lose let's go for the deal and it was a very common thing in ancient times for rulers to marry their sons and daughters off to other rulers in order to make a league to make an alliance so all this was from the Shechemites point of view was a a good business deal a trade agreement and that's how they saw it but what they didn't see was what comes next An act of retaliation. Look at verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, that is the men of Shechem were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out, and the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. Now let me ask you a question. It's a very simple question. Did the punishment fit the crime? In this instance, does the punishment fit the crime? Yes, Dinah was defiled. Yes, she had been seduced, maybe even perhaps somewhat taken advantage of, given that she's a young girl. But does that warrant killing and looting and enslavement? Is that a fair deal? Does this right the wrong? And so, what you have here is this image where Shechem is heading home. You know, he's, he's, he's heading back to his town. And there's a little skip in a step. His, his heart is, is filled with delight at the thought he can marry his young lover. He's absolutely head over heels with this girl. And he's looking forward to walking her down the aisle. And he's counting the days. But listen, on the other side of the arrangement, as the sons of Jacob were counting the days, in fact, they were counting the hours. 72 hours, we're going into that time and we're going to sort these people out. And so when the men of Shechem, three days after their circumcision, were in the greatest degree of pain and were totally indisposed by the uh, circumcision, the sons of Jacob came bursting through the doors of their homes and slit the throats of every father and son and brother in that time. No sensible person would say that that was right. That that was fair. That they had it coming. Nobody would say that. And notice how they had to drag Dinah out of Shechem's house in verse 26. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house. She didn't go voluntarily. They had to go in and remove her physically from the home. What we're looking at in this chapter is nothing less than raw revenge. But my goodness, when people perceive a deep hurt, there's no telling the length to which they will sink in order to avenge themselves. I heard about a deacon who fell out with his pastor. He was very sore about something or other. He went one night and he climbed over the fence of the pastor's house. And he broke up all the toys in the garden that belonged to the pastor's children. Imagine lowering yourself to such a level as to taking out your anger on little boys and girls. But that's basically what Simeon and Levi did. They took out their anger on the families of Shechem. And you know where none of us are above that. When I was a teenager, when I was a young man, I was out playing football just in the street. There was a bunch of young people hanging about the street and I was kicking a ball against a wall. And I was trying to strengthen my shot, trying to strengthen my kick, and I was kicking it quite hard. And at one point, the ball came out, and it bounced right out of behind me, and it smacked a little girl right in the face. I mean, right on her glasses. Her glasses came off. And it was painful. I have no doubt it was painful. And I was sorry that it happened. It wasn't done on purpose. Uh, And I went to apologise, but she ran off before I could even speak to her. ran off to her home. And the next thing I knew was her elder brother, who was about 19 or so, I was about 13 or so, came up with his brother-in-law, who was probably in his 20s. And the brother-in-law grabbed me and held my arms, and the brother laid into me, and he gave me a terrible beating. And I remember thinking, someday, when I'm big enough, I'm going to get you. He wouldn't hear the He wouldn't hear the reason he just want to lay into me and so when I got to about 17 years of age and I bear in mind at this point I'm a punk rocker when I got to be about 17 years of age I had a friend that was Alistair Rightside Alistair was well he was a teenage psychopath uh, and so Alistair, I told Alistair this story and he said well I'll tell you what he says let's go and I said okay so we began to watch this man in the evening. We knew what time he came home from work. We knew what bus he was on. We knew at twenty past five each night he would step off that bus. We knew that less than about thirty yards from the bus stop there was an alley. And we had decided that one night we were going to grab him. And we were going to drag him down that alley. And we were going to kick the life out of him. And I was looking forward to it. I'll be honest with you I couldn't wait I was like Jacob's sons I was counting the days and I couldn't wait whenever he was lying or in pain to get in his face and say remember me but something happened I got saved (laughs) in between that plan and the execution of the plan I got saved and I didn't have the heart to do it after I was saved I knew it wouldn't have been the right thing to do And it was a good thing that I didn't do it because subsequently we found out this man had some kind of growth in his brain and required major brain surgery and likely we would have killed him. We might well have killed the man. But my goodness, you don't know how low the human heart will sink when you surrender to revenge. And how careful we have to be to give grace when it's offered and refuse revenge no matter how tempting it seems. And that's why the Bible speaks to us in this area. Look in Romans chapter 12 for a moment. Romans chapter 12. Verse 17. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. It says recompense. There's the first word. It's not a word that we use every day, but it means payback. Payback to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now watch verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink, for in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You see what you're to do? You're to be kind to your enemy. As Jesus put it, you're to love your enemy. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. Revenge is nasty business. You know what? You think about our country. And you think about years and years and years of tit-for-tat killings. Throughout the Troubles, that was a war of revenge. They did that to us, so we'll do this to them. And that sustained that conflict all those years. And you think about how many graves in Ulster are filled tonight because men's hearts were filled with revenge. Revenge is a dirty business. But when the Lord avenges, his measures are just. You see, God is not tainted By sin. God is not biased in his opinion. God always operates from the purest of motives. And God always makes the punishment fit the crime. Look, if somebody sometime has wronged you, leave it with the Lord. Let God deal with it. Either they'll make it right or God will make it right. But you can be sure of this, it'll be made right someday, some way. Don't revenge yourself. Don't avenge yourself. Well, as we close out this chapter, not only was there an act of retaliation, but we find there's a matter of reputation. Look at verses 30 and 31 as we finish. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, who were clearly the leaders in this massacre, You have troubled me to make me distinct among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number. They shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Now pay close attention to verse 30 because I want you to see how Jacob was filled with self-pity here. Jacob said to Simon and Levi, You have troubled me. Really? You, Jacob, you're the one who's been troubled? You're the one who's been bothered by this most of all? You know the truth of the matter is that Jacob throughout all his years of scheming had brought this trouble to his own door by his own bad example before his children. Remember not so many chapters before we saw him come up to his brother Esau at Peniel and lie outright saying to his brother you head on back home and I'll follow behind. And he turns 180 degrees and goes the opposite direction. They saw his self-interest. When God had told them to go and dwell at Bethel, they saw his self-interest when he got the Shechem and he saw that it was a good place for business and he said, "Forget Bethel, lads. We're going to park here for a while. There's money to be made here. Let's put God's word on the back burner." And they were shocked by his silence when he should have come to the, to the defense of his daughter Dinah and rescued her from this situation. But all Jacob is concerned with here is Jacob. Look at the personal pronouns in verse 30. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me distinct among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. No thought for your daughter Jacob, no thought for her mother, no concern about the abuse of the covenantal seal in an act of revenge, no indignation for using the holy to justify the unholy, no consideration for Hamor whose body is lying cold in his own blood or Shechem a young man who made one mistake perhaps who is equally lying dead. Or indeed all the men of that town who had nothing to do with this offence. Whose lives have been lost in a senseless massacre. No indignation for them. No, it's all about me. And I told you at the outset of this chapter. This is a chapter where there's an absence of God and a fullness of sin. And friends, when you cut God out of your life, guess what? Guess who now matters? Me. Life is all about me. I'm looking after me. I'm number one. Well, it wasn't just his reputation that was on the line. And Simeon and Levi are very quick to chastise him. Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Here's the reality of this sin laden chapter. Now, I want you to listen to this. Everybody in this chapter lost. This is a chapter for losers. You know, Shechem lost his life. Dinah lost her first love. She lost her virginity. She lost her reputation. She's mentioned only one more time in the whole of the book of Genesis. She became a widow even before she became a wife. Jacob lost his primary source of income. There were no men in the town with which he could trade now. They were all lying dead. And Simeon and Levi lost their testimony. You know, friends, some sins make waves. And sexual sins especially make waves. They are rarely contained with the lives of those who are involved in them. They raise a tsunami of consequence. Dinah was a young girl looking for affection who fell into sin. How easily that can happen. Shechem was a worldly young man who first lusted after and later loved this young woman. Little did he know that this act would lead him to his death. Jacob was busily making money, oblivious to the fact that his world was about to come tumbling in. And when his sons came out of their field, little did they know that what they were walking into and walking out to do. Brothers and sisters, I want to say this to you. Sin is the most terrible task, master. And brings only destruction and hurt. Jesus gave us this word of warning. He said concerning the wicked one, The thief, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. This chapter is certainly testimony to that. But it's equally true in our lives that Jesus, thankfully, didn't end there, but went on telling us that he came. That we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly, with super abundance. If you could have sat down with that family that day and said to them all, Hey, how's life going? I don't think you'd have found a very happy home. Jacob certainly wasn't happy. Dinah wasn't happy. Her brothers were not happy. The thief had come, and he had stolen and killed and destroyed. But had everybody done the right thing, guess what? It would have been an entirely different picture. It would have been a joyous home. It would have been a home in which those within it were living out the super abundant life that Christ offers. Firstly, when we trust him, and secondly, when we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Brothers and sisters, let's not forget that this morning, and let's endeavor to walk whatever happens so as to please the Lord.